Brothers and sisters, I ask that you would please turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 14 in verses 43 to 52. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, from the moment that Jesus began to make His way to Jerusalem with the apostles, it has all led up to now. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, on three different occasions, told the apostles that He must be delivered up to the elders, to the chief priests and to the scribes, and that they would condemn Him to death. And Jesus, our Lord, knows this because Jesus is the greatest expositor and interpreter of Scripture who ever lived. Jesus, as the infallible interpreter of Scripture, understood that all of the Old Testament was speaking about Him. He understood and He interpreted a text like Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7 which says this, He was oppressed He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb, He was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He interpreted this in light of His own coming. In His coming, Jesus has stepped out from behind the shadow of the Old Testament, which was pointing towards Jesus the whole time. And in essence, He steps out from behind it and He says, I am here. I am here. The reality of what was prophesied for all of those years has come and will now be fulfilled in the person of Christ. And Christ understands this. And now after that Garden of Gethsemane experience that we read about last week, He is ready for it. Right? He from the Old Testament knew the blueprint for His life. Jesus from the Old Testament understood what His end must be. Because like in Isaiah 53.7, Jesus also understood what Isaiah says just a few verses later in verse 10. 
when it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus likewise, just as he did with verse 7, interprets verse 10 in light of his own coming. Now, as we have seen from last week, just because Jesus knows this and understands this, it does not mean that Jesus, according to his human nature, did not have fear or agony over the end that he knows he must endure. Or that he did not have to combat and struggle with the schemes of the devil who wanted nothing more than Jesus to turn his back upon his father. It didn't mean that he had to struggle with the schemes of the devil who wanted nothing more than Jesus to turn his back on his mission as Redeemer of his people. And in fact, we've seen Jesus agonized greatly in his soul over what he knew was on the horizon. And he began to feel the weight of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in that garden that he became keenly aware, more than ever, of the shame and the humiliation that he must suffer, being hung upon the cross publicly for all to see. It was in that garden that the weight of the guilt of sin that was going to be laid upon him was ever so present before his eyes and weighed so heavily upon his heart. It was in the garden that the temptations from Satan intensified more than they ever had. The reality for Jesus that he was walking into the tribunal of God, the great judge who was going to pour his wrath upon him as he hung upon the cross was so clear to Jesus as he knelt in that garden and prayed three times over to his Father. But as that great Savior, right, as the perfect, spotless, sinless Messiah, what else did we say about Christ last week? We said that through prayer, Jesus was strengthened and that He voluntarily and willingly said yes to the will of the Father. And He overcame and defeated those fiery darts of the devil. And He was resolute in accomplishing His mission. Saying at the end of verse 41 and into verse 42, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going, seeing my betrayer is at hand. And this then is where our text picks up this morning. As we are told, as soon as Jesus makes this pronouncement, Judas, and with him a crowd, appears here in the garden so that they might arrest Jesus our Lord. And it is this event, the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we together want to look at with more detail this morning. And so we're going to do that, brothers and sisters, and we're going to do that in three points. We're going to have three main points. And the three main points are this. Uh, first, point one, is the angry mob arrives. The angry mob arrives. Point number two is the kiss of betrayal. The kiss of betrayal. And point number three is the Savior stands alone. The Savior stands alone. So the angry mob arrives, the kiss of betrayal, the Savior stands alone. So point number one, the angry mob arrives. 
Now we're told in verse 43 that when Judas came, he came with a crowd armed with with clubs and swords from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. In John's Gospel, we're told that when Judas arrives, he also comes with a band of soldiers. And so what we really have here is uh, the, 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 the temple police as well as some Roman soldiers who have converged in our Lord this evening with the intent of arresting Jesus. Now, if you never heard of Jesus before, but all you heard about is that there was this large contingent of people armed with clubs and swords to arrest someone, right? you would think to yourself, this person must have done something terribly wrong. They must have committed some grievous act that they have come out with such show of force. I mean, it wasn't too long ago I was driving through the city of Milwaukee and I seen uh, two armored vehicles and about a dozen police cars surrounding a house. And the first thing that I thought to myself was this person must have done something egregious. They must have committed some terrible crime. The police must have considered them armed and dangerous, which is why they showed up with such a show of force. That's why they brought all these reinforcements so that in the arrest of this individual, he would go down without a fight. You bring all those people so that nothing will escalate. So that he will go down without any incident, but you also bring them in case there is an incident, in case things do escalate, that you have the proper reinforcements to put down that threat. But I ask you, brothers and sisters, today, what threat was Jesus? What threat was Jesus? What threat was Jesus that made all of these people, this entire crowd, Roman soldiers and temple police, show up with such a show of force? What was it? Was it was it that Jesus healed a man with demon possession? Was it the the terrible sin of or, or the terrible crime of, of making a man whole on the Sabbath day? Was it that Jesus forgave the sins of a paralytic? Was it because of words that Jesus spoke of the gospel? Is this the, the, the wicked deeds that he did that these men must show out? And show up to him in this way? Right? Even Jesus says in verse 48, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me? Doesn't Jesus here seem to intimate that he could understand if these men came out in this force if he was a robber? Jesus he could understand this, but, but that in fact was not Jesus. Right? He, he did nothing. He was not dangerous in the least bit. Right? He even says, if I was so dangerous, why did you not arrest me when I was in the temple? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You could have came and got me in the daytime when it would have been much easier to capture me. But instead you chose now to come under the cover of darkness with torches to be able to find me. Now perhaps, brothers and sisters, they thought that Jesus was going to put up some sort of physical fight. But if that is what they thought, they were under a false assumption. But they were under that false assumption. Why? Because they didn't understand the nature of Christ's kingdom. Because Christ's kingdom is not established through violence or through the sword. Christ was not gathering an army to to topple the Roman Empire. But regardless of the exact reason for, for why all of these men feel the need to gather and converge on Christ that day, what we do know is that one of the motivating reasons for this is because the Jewish leaders feared Jesus. 
Right? They feared Jesus. They didn't fear Him physically. Right? But were they not intimidated by the words of Christ? Were they not intimidated by the teachings and the doctrine of Christ? Were they not intimidated by the authority upon which Christ taught? Were they not afraid of the power of Christ as they seen Him work those great and mighty miracles? Were they not frightened knowing that this One who has come has been sent in the name of the Lord? They knew that He came from God. And so in bringing all these people, what they wanted to do was make sure that Jesus' apprehension was certain. They wanted to make sure there was absolutely no way of escape for our Lord. That there was no way that He was going to slip out from them that evening. But why do they want Him so bad? Right? Why do they want Him so bad that now, this night, they have come out to do what many of them have been planning to do for almost three years now? Well, I think for all of them, they probably have different reasons for why they are there that evening and why they want to arrest Jesus. For the chief priests, they were probably embarrassed by Jesus and embarrassed one too many times. If it was just days before, if you recall, that Jesus rebukes them in the temple, He he rebukes them for their false religion and for their hypocrisy, and He threatens the authority, really, that they have over the people. Because everyone sees what He's doing. Perhaps the scribes, these supposed most learned men in Jerusalem, the experts of the law, right, want to come out and apprehend Jesus because He has made them look foolish time and time again. As they are unable or unwilling to answer the questions of Jesus for fear of being exposed as inferior to Him in their knowledge of the law. The Pharisees, these were men who, who He said were blind guides leading the blind who preferred the traditions of the elders to the commandments of God. If you remember from the parable, the parable of the tenants, it was the Pharisees who, who were the ones that, that Jesus says rejected the chief cornerstone and who were going to be destroyed by the Father. And so we see that the, the Pharisees have a, a deep-seated hatred for Christ. Right? It was the Pharisees and the scribes that He pronounces those seven woes to in Matthew chapter 23. Judas is there just to carry out his part of the agreement, his part of the bargain, that he was going to lead them to Christ so that he could be captured. And so Judas's reason for being there was money, was greed. That's what brought him to lead that cast of characters out there that evening. And the Roman soldiers, they are there because they don't want any uprising. They don't want any Jewish revolt. They don't want any trouble. So they have come in force to make sure that it did not occur. But I want us to see all of this, brothers and sisters. All of this. All of these people converged upon Christ that evening so that they might arrest the Prince of Peace. All of this for the Prince of Peace. This just goes to show us how much darkness hates light, doesn't it? It reveals to us the extent that people are willing to go to extinguish that light. It demonstrates to us how much the world... And we at one time with the world hated the light and loved darkness. It demonstrates to us how much the world and we with the world at one time hated righteousness and holiness. Right? It reveals to us how the world and we with the world at one time hated the truth of God's Word, despised the truth, and exchanged the truth for a lie in order to suit ourselves and our own desires and wants and needs. Even today, brothers and sisters, what is a phrase that we hear a lot? It is, speak your own truth, 
speak your own truth. I'm sure many of you have heard that. But people say that. Why today? It's because they don't want their wickedness exposed. It's really a, a contract made between sinners, isn't it? It's, I won't say anything about the way you think or the way that you live your life. I won't say that it's wrong at all. And in exchange for that, I'm going to live my life in the way that I want to. I'm going to think and believe and say what I want. And you aren't to tell me that anything I'm doing is wrong either. Now just imagine if our Lord and Savior lived like that when He was here on earth. Imagine if that is how He approached His interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees. When they were teaching the traditions of the elders and Jesus said, well, that's, that's your truth. That's fine, but I have my truth. No, Jesus exposed it. He exposed it because anything that goes against the truth is false. Anything that goes against the truth is a lie. And Jesus is the truth. And the Word of God is the truth. And we as a church are called to proclaim this truth. And so long as we continue to do what we've been commissioned to do, proclaim that truth, we too, just like Christ, can expect to experience the vitriol from this world. And we see this. Throughout history, we have a a testimony of this through the lives of men throughout human history. We can look and think about men like John Wycliffe, Thomas Cranmer, Martin Luther, men who opposed the Roman Catholic Church and its ungodly practices and its ungodly teachings that were contrary to Scripture. And just like Christ, what happened to these men? The authorities went looking for them to, to put these men to death, not because they were murderers, Not because they were thieves and robbers, but simply because they stood for the truth. And they exposed lies. And and they were beacons of light in the midst of darkness. And the manner in which the arrest of Jesus occurred is going to be the same manner in which the church today and going on in the future is going to continue to experience these attacks. And this is what I mean by this. That Jesus, as these men converge on Him, is not just sought out to be destroyed by those outside of his group of followers. Right? It's not just Jesus' enemies that want to destroy him. In fact, one who has brought this plan about and who will bring it to fruition is one who is supposed to be Jesus' follower and friend. And this leads us this morning then into point number two, which is the kiss of betrayal. Please look with me at verses 43 to 46. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't think that it is by accident or without any intention uh, that Judas here is called one of the twelve. He is one of the twelve here. He is one of the twelve that stood with Christ who on this evening is standing side by side and shoulder to shoulder with the enemy. Mark, I think, is emphasizing he is one of the twelve to to demonstrate to us or to reveal to us the, the cowardly and selfish nature of this act of betrayal on 
the part of Judas. Right? It came from one of the twelve. Right? One of Jesus' twelve closest associates. One of the twelve upon whom Christ revealed the mysteries of the Gospel to, which was veiled to so many others. One of the twelve whom Jesus spent time with intimately over the course of three years. One of the twelve in whom Jesus only did good to throughout His entire existence. And it's one of the twelve who allows Satan to put in his heart the desire to betray Jesus in this way. And it is one of the twelve, Judas, who goes through with this great act of betrayal. And what we need to see here, brothers and sisters, is that what makes this act of betrayal all the more egregious is that he seals it with the sign of a kiss. This is what makes that act of betrayal all the more egregious because what does a kiss symbolize? A kiss symbolizes love. From a student to its teacher, it symbolizes honor and great respect that you have for your teacher. It also, during Jesus' day, symbolized friendship. This is how they would greet one another. And that is the symbol that, Jude, that Judas chose to couch his betrayal in. His very last act in the presence of his Lord was to place those unclean lips upon the cheek of the perfect and sinless Savior. And how does Jesus then respond to Judas's great act of betrayal? Well, Matthew, in his parallel account of this text, tells us in chapter 26 and verse 50, Jesus responds with this, Friend, do what you have come to do. We might have expected Jesus to say, Get behind me, Satan. Or you are going to spend the rest of your days in eternal destruction. But that is not what Jesus says. He says to him, friend. And I think he calls him friend to sear Judas's conscience. To remind Judas of the unspeakable kindness and unfathomable goodness that he showed to Judas throughout the entirety of their time together. And it is with this kiss then that Judas all but says goodbye as he seals with this kiss his eternal destination. As his hardened heart feels nothing for those words of our Lord, friend, do what you have come to do. But here, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see, what I want us to learn is what happens to those who allow the love of anything else other than God and our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus to reign supreme in our hearts. Right? Let Judas's life be a warning to each of you this morning of what can happen for the one who sins. And instead of turning to the Lord and confessing your sin, you continue to bury yourself underneath it over and over and over again, slowly over time, making that sin the practice of your life. Right? Judas certainly followed Jesus initially because there was something about Jesus and his message that attracted Judas to Jesus. Judas at least appears for a time to be a very religious person, doesn't he? I mean, he's given the, the task of being the treasurer of the church. He must have been a man who was seen of, as having great integrity. He must have been one who was highly esteemed, well thought of. I mean, even think about what Jesus says in the upper room when he says, one of you will betray me, what happens? 
None of them say it's Judas. They all ask, is it I, Lord? But something changed. That initial spark of temporary faith that Judas has has gone away. Because Judas now has a desire for monetary gain. Right? Instead of working for his money, Judas has found it easier just to take what he wants. Right? Judas, like many popular preachers today, want to preach Christ but live like kings. They want to preach Christ but live like kings. They, like Judas, don't enjoy a modest lifestyle. They want the excesses of what life has to offer. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, one must win out. And for Judas, his desire for dishonest gain and that love for money that overflowed out of the abundance of Judas's heart, that is what won out. He loved money more than he loved Christ. Judas loved money more than he loved righteousness. He loved money more than he loved holiness and purity. He loved money more than he loved the honor of God. And sadly, brothers and sisters, he loved money even more than he loved his own soul. He loved money even more than he loved his own soul. And so let us here be quick to see our own sin and humble enough to immediately go before the Lord and confess it when it arises. Because if we do not, as one author puts it, the germ of what he was, that is Judas, lies in each of us and may develop itself before we are aware, unless we place ourselves under the protection of divine grace. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what do you do? Or what does a country or a nation do when they know that they are under attack? Do they sit back and just hope that the threat will go away? Or do they begin to fortify the city walls? Do they begin to bring in provisions for themselves? Do they begin to arm themselves and ready themselves for battle? Do they put men by the, the doors of the gates and have men on top of the castle watching to see if anyone is coming in the night? Of course they do. Of course they do. And we must do so also. We must be fortifying our souls. We must be strengthening our hearts. We must be growing in faith, in discernment, in holiness. And we do this, brothers and sisters, by walking closely with Christ. By walking closely with Christ. By going to Him daily in prayer because He is our rock. He is our strength. And He is the ever-present defender of the souls of those who are His. And so let us live under the wings of our Lord's protection. So, brothers and sisters, that we would not be guilty of planting a traitor's kiss upon our Lord through ungodly living or through unbelief. This leads us then into point number three then, which is the Savior stands alone. The Savior stands alone. Let's look together, please, starting at verse 47, and we'll read to the end. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, in John's Gospel, in chapter 18 and verse 10, we're told that the one who struck the ear of the servant of the high priest was Peter. 
Right? It was Peter who drew his sword and cut off the ear of this servant. Now at first glance, it might appear to some that what Peter did was a great act of, uh, that it was a great act, a great courageous act, and that it was a praiseworthy attack by, by Peter. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that it wasn't. Right? It wasn't. In fact, what, what Peter did, he did out of ignorance. And it was willful ignorance at that because Jesus told him, this must happen. And remember the last time that he did not heed the Savior's words and he tried to stand in the way of Jesus accomplishing his will? What does he say to, to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him. And here again is another example of Peter not heeding the Savior's words and trying to stop what God has ordained that must take place. But Peter's problem, as we've seen last week, is that Peter was spiritually asleep. Peter was spiritually asleep. The time that he should have been in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Lord told him, watching over his soul, he was laying in slumber. And now perhaps, after just waking up, he's still in a fog. And so the first thing that he does is to draw his sword and cut off the ear in order to prevent the arrest of our Lord. But listen to what Jesus says in response to Peter's actions. We're told in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 52. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus here rebukes Peter for his misplaced zeal. And Peter's zeal was misplaced because it was not regulated by the words of Christ or by the will of God. But rather it was regulated by Peter's own will. That is what he wanted to do. He sought out, although unknowingly, to overturn the decree of God to save His people, which had to come through the arrest and the death of Christ. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say then in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and that He will not at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus is telling Peter, and with Peter, all of us here today, I don't need your defense. I don't need your help. My father could send 12 legions of angels and I could wipe everyone out here today. Here he is also demonstrating that he is at this moment at at peace with what must occur and that he is in total control of this event that is transpiring. And he knows though that it must happen for Scripture to be fulfilled in this exact manner. And so Christ is not willing to allow anyone, even his most dear Apostle Peter, to stand in the way of the will of God being fulfilled. And then what do we read happens next? In verse 50 we are told that all of them left him. Right? Even this young man who followed him, who many believe to be the author of this Gospel, Mark. We're told that the guards even seized this man and they ripped his garment and he took off running naked into the night. But at the end of the night, what is the picture, brothers and sisters, that we are left with? After the dust settles, we are left with with this great contingent of men there and we are left with Jesus, our Lord and Savior, standing all alone without a friend in sight. And after all of that boastful talk from the apostles, Lord, we would rather die than deny You. They all fled and hid. May we learn from their example not to be overconfident in our own faith. Right? May we also, though, learn from their example and from how Christ deals with them 
that many people will fail us in this life. Right? People will let us down, but that does not mean that we are to, to stop loving them. But instead, brothers and sisters, we are to extend grace to them. We are to extend grace to those who fail us as the failures of the apostles did not cause Christ to stop loving them. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, we are told this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And the apostles' lives after the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are lively examples of that, isn't it? If you think about it, your own life is a lively example of the truthfulness and veracity of this text here today. But Jesus ends up here standing all alone because Scripture must be fulfilled in order for Christ to win salvation for His people. And since Christ is the Savior, He alone could stand before these men as Savior. As Christ alone is the only one who is fit for the task as He is the God-man, and as the God-man, only He was fit to bear the iniquity of sinners and reconcile reconcile God to man. Now, we oftentimes hear people say, and usually of special athletes, this person was born for this. Well, brothers and sisters, never more was this saying true than when we speak of Christ. Christ was born for this. And during this, this time of the year, as people start to make preparations to remember the birth of Christ, you cannot remember the birth of Christ without remembering why He came. Without remembering why He had to be born of the Virgin and assume upon Himself our nature. Right? It, was, it was for this, brothers and sisters. The birth of Christ was not an end in and of itself, but rather the birth of Christ was a beginning which was leading up to His arrest and His suffering and His death and this, and he, this is something that Christ and Christ alone could only endure. It was Christ and Christ alone, by His blood, who was able to satisfy divine justice. It was Christ and it was Christ alone who could bear the weight of our griefs and our sorrows. It was Christ and Christ alone who alone could be smitten and stricken by God and afflicted. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Christ and Christ alone, without the help of man, had to endure this on our behalf. He and He alone had to carry this great burden for us. And thanks be to God, brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God that Christ did. Christ did all that He was sent to do and He fulfilled the Scriptures. And because Christ was able to to go through all of these agonizing sorrows, He is now our help when we go through agonizing sorrows, isn't He? He is able to be there by our side. So that even if we have no one here on earth to be by our side, we can know as believers that Christ will always be there for us. And for those of you who do not believe who are here today, Christ likewise can be your present help in times of need. But you must look to Christ in faith. You must confess your sin. You must plead and ask for forgiveness. 
so that you too, like all of the saints, can sing that last line of that great hymn, Jesus, what a friend to sinners, which concludes like this. Jesus, I do now receive Him. More than all in Him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am His and He is mine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the mysteries of the Gospel that have been revealed to Your people. We are so thankful for the salvation that You have wrought for us in Christ. Uh, We pray, Father, this day that You would cause us to remember uh, not only the exaltation of Christ, but cause us to remember the humiliation of Christ and enable that to to be a motivation for us uh, to not be uh, hypocrites, uh, to not walk in uh, unsavory ways and manners, but rather that we would walk closely with our Lord so that we would not bestow upon our Savior's cheek a traitor's kiss. We pray, Father, that You would strengthen us in the faith and that You would give us opportunities this week uh, to, to live out the very words that You have taught us this morning. And we come before You and we ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.